Hey, thank you, Van. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. And trouble never really looks the same. Weather brings trouble. Wars bring trouble. And typically, the trouble only comes to a small part of our globe. But this season, you know it, trouble has arrived everywhere in the form of a microbe, a virus, everywhere on our planet. People are hunkering down like you are, practicing social distancing, self-quarantines, washing hands, and waiting for the trouble to be over. You know, we can't stop trouble, but we can learn from God what to do when trouble comes our way. What do we say to our kids? How do we act at home? How do we behave at work and in our community? Today, we're going to look back in history 3,000 years ago to discover how to survive, and not only to survive, but to thrive when trouble shows up in our lives. Yes, the trouble we're looking at today, it's going to be different than the one that we're going through right now, but the principles for thriving during trouble, well, biblical principles, they never change. From real-life people who live long before us, we're going to learn both what not to do and what to do when trouble comes our way. Our story, it begins in a period of Israel's history known as the Divided Kingdom. You know, Israel had the red states and the blue states, and the kingdom of Israel in the north with Samaria as its capital, and the kingdom of Judah in the south with Jerusalem as its capital. And us Americans, we know a divided nation is a weakened nation, a nation open to attack. Well, 3,000 years ago, the attack came to the northern kingdom, right to their capital of Samaria, a city of 25,000, built atop of an isolated 300-foot hill. Like, picture the top of a Midwest ski resort, no taller than that. On three sides of the city, there were fertile valleys and slopes full of wheat and barley and olives and grapes. It's kind of like living next door to a Trader Joe's, you know, fresh produce just around the corner. And this capital city, was a well-fortified city. Their government had built three walls encircling the city to protect it. And these three walls, an outer wall, a middle wall, and an inner wall of stone that was like five feet thick, it ringed the city. It was a fantastic fortress. But as you're soon going to see, their fortress became a prison. Their enemies had made several attempts to scale the walls with small bands of raiders, but each time they failed. But one enemy decided to take a different approach. And history courts that the leader of the Aramean nation, a man named Ben Hadad, everybody in the comments right now, just type Hadad in the comments. Ben Hadad, I mean, what a name. The king, he chose to unleash a military strategy called the siege. He sent his army to surround the city, cutting them off from their food supply. This is 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24. Sometime later, the Bible tells us Ben-Hadad, Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. Now, how effective was the siege? Well, you know how hard it is to find toilet paper and hand sanitizer right now? Imagine if there was a weaponized army standing between you and Walmart. <laughs> yeah, verse 25 says there was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. In other words, for 50 bucks, you could purchase a donkey's head for dinner. Now, I don't know about you, but when I head over to Smoky Bones, I don't order ribs with the head still attached. I mean, braised beast of burden with Bernays is not on the menu. But in Samaria, donkey heads are selling like toilet paper. And then it says there was a quarter of a cab of seed pods selling for five shekels. I mean, what is that? 
Well, if you turn in the back of your Bible to the weights and measures section, that'll tell you that a quarter of a cab of anything is about a cup. It won't tell you what seed pods are, but I will. Seed pods is bird poop. Yes, the birds, they're not under siege. They're, they're eating the grapes, the olives, and then they're flying over the walled city of Samaria and they're pooping out the seeds. I know. So entrepreneurial, 10-year-old boys, they're rummaging through their mother's kitchen drawers. They're pulling out knives and spoons and small containers, and then they're running out to the walls to scrape the droppings into small packages of bird poop. I mean, can you see these little salesmen standing on the street corner hawking bird poop? Get your bird poop, bird poop here, just $3, quarter cab, bird poop. I mean, that's the scene. That's the setting. And just like in our coronavirus pandemic, we find that some people panic while other people thrive. The panic people in our story were people living in the city. They were not doing well. And we're going to look at how to thrive in just a moment. But first, let's look at what these city panickers do to see, you know, kind of what not to do when trouble arrives in our lives. The first mistake the panic people made was to become self-reliant. Maybe you could write that down. I should avoid self reliance. You see, self-reliance leads to arrogance. And trouble, I mean, it ought to humble us. Trouble ought to cause us to reach out to God. Trouble ought to cause us to ask others for help. Listen, if you have a need in this pandemic, I want you to know you can reach out to your church. We want to help you. But you got to let us know you need it. These city folks, they were living in the middle of a major trade route, and they lived well. They were affluent. I mean, which is one reason why they were such an attractive target to their enemies. Unfortunately, their affluence not only attracted attack from the outside, but they also allowed their affluence to corrupt them on the inside. They had like affluenza, you know, a virus of the heart. They thought they could kind of buy their way out of the problem. The donkey said, it's kind of a clue. You see, the asset base of the Samaritan economy was working animals. You know, it's kind of pretty easy to figure out that in order to put donkey heads on the menu, the rest of the donkeys already sold out. In other words, the famine created an economic panic. Prices of donkey rides through the vineyards dropped to nearly nothing, like plane light, plane, like, can I say airplane? Like airplane rides are dropping right now. You know, while prices of other items back in Samaria, like the donkey itself, or in our case, hand sanitizer, soared to new heights. They were in a panic. Why? Because all they saw were their own resources. It's typical behavior for those who are used to solving life's problems with their affluence. Maybe you've caught yourself doing the same thing in this pandemic. I'll just rely on myself. I mean, maybe you've joined the social media course. Ah, oh, this is nothing. The corona is no big deal. If it hits me, I'll be fine. You know, one of my boys told me, Dad, I'm young. It won't kill me. I'll be fine. Friends, that's living in self-reliance. And it's ignorant. The people around you, they need you. They need you to stay healthy. Healthy so you can avoid passing the virus to others. Healthy so that you can meet the needs of those who are struggling. I mean, how can you and I be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ if our lungs fill up with pneumonia? You know, yesterday I, I got an email asking me to preach on James 4.8. Do you know what James 4.8 says? Wash your hands, you sinners. Yeah, uh, give me an LOL in the comments, right? Uh, well, yeah, I, I miss teaching you guys here in the worship service. LOL. Hey, God says pride comes before destruction. In other words, affluenza will wipe you out. These Samaritans thought, we got plenty of resources. If the food runs out, we'll eat our animals. In other words, who needs God? We got money. 
However, some problems, they grow bigger than our resources. Some problems can't be solved by raiding the grocery store, by dipping into our bank account or selling off a few resources, which leads us to the next how not to do it step that we should avoid. I mean, what happens when you run out of donkey sets? What happens when bird poops goes from like $3 to $300 a seed pot? Well, as we return to the story, the king of Samaria is at his wit's end. He's king of a city without food, without resources, without hope. And in this next verse, we find the king walking along the top of that five-foot-thick inner wall. Verses 26 and 27. Israel's king was passing by on the city wall when a woman appealed to him. Help me, my, your majesty. The king said to him, no, no, no. May the Lord help you. I mean, where could I find help for you? From the threshing floor? From the wine press? I mean, this woman is crying out to the government for help. You know, in my imagination, it's kind of more dramatic than what the Bible's revealing here because this scene here involves two women, not one. <laughs> and these women, they're fighting, like cage fighting, hair pulling, nail scratching. It's crazy. Like, like most guys, the king probably stopped to watch. And when one woman yells out to him, the king tells her, well, if it's food she wants, she's talking to the wrong king. She better ask God. And then out of curiosity, the king asks, hey, what's going on anyways? Why are you two fighting? And you won't believe what this woman said. But it's right here in verse 28. The king asked her, what's troubling you? She answered, a woman said to me, give up your son so we can eat him today. And we're going to eat my son tomorrow. So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, well, hand over your son so we can eat him. But she had hidden her son. Oh, you know, when our kids were young, Lisa and I, we had this bedtime routine for them, you know, with a Bible story and a prayer time. And one night as I'm reading to Scott and Brad, maybe they're like eight and five years old, this eating the kids story, it came up. And now my kids have had this routine their whole life. So they know when I tell a Bible story that I always include a little detail that didn't happen, you know, just to keep these preacher's kids on their toes. Like, like if I'm telling the story of Daniel in the lion's den, I'd add a Pokemon or two in the story. It was a game, and when they caught me, they, and they always caught me, they would say, Nuh-uh, Dad. So here I am, and I'm reading this story from the Bible. I mean, that's why children's Bibles are great, because you're never going to find stories like this one in a carefully curated kid's Bible. I mean, some things you just don't teach in Sunday school. I mean, did you ever go to kids' church? Do you remember? Could you just see your teacher putting up a felt board for this one? I mean, a little felt cut out of a kid into a felt kettle, like Hansel and Gretel meet Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> I'm telling you. Anyhow, I'm reading the Bible to my boys, and I get to this part where people are toasting toddlers. And I just read it quickly, you know, trusting God's got it in here for some reason. And the second I read it, my five-year-old Brad says, Nuh-uh, Dad. Parents don't eat their kids. Well, before I could respond to the truth of what I was reading, Scott, who could read, took over and said, Well, actually, it does say that. And he points to the words which Brad cannot yet read. And he says, Yep. Sometimes parents do eat their kids. I look at Brad. He's trying to process this. And his big brother, Scott, he sees it too. So Scott quickly adds, yep, says right here, they eat the little ones first. Shake and bake. I think mom has the recipe. 
Brad, at this point, he's no longer processing. He's reacting. He's inched away from me. He's pulling the covers over his face. And meanwhile, Scott's, you know, suggesting a taste test. Yeah, bad dreams that night for Bradster. But he had it right, didn't he? Nuh-uh. Parents don't eat their kids. I mean, that's a pretty basic understanding of the parent-child relationship. Parents fix dinner for kids, but they don't fix kids for dinner. This is the second big error that the people of Samaria made. They allowed trouble to change their values. If you're taking notes, write that down. I should not allow trouble to change my values. Listen, you don't have to be a student of biblical history to know the Jews were not cannibals. But when trouble arrived and money wouldn't solve it, they cashed in their values. Mothers, mind you, not dads. I mean, dads might kid around about barbecuing the kids, but, but mamas, they don't play like that, you know? And, and here we have mommies that would have never eaten their kids under any other circumstances cooking the kids. You say, Ray, that, that's ridiculous. That's hashtag not relatable. Listen, people don't eat their kids today, Ray. What are, what are you talking about? No, no, they don't. They just molest them and abuse them. Yeah, sorry, I could take off on a tangent here. Yeah, you're right. The circumstances today are different. COVID-19 is not just an army at the gate, but this virus can be just as threatening, just as isolating. And it's so easy to violate your values when life gets upended by trouble and you find yourself cocooned in your own home. For example, I mean, maybe you don't get drunk or maybe you don't watch porn or indulge in inappropriate shows, but, but in this pandemic, you might be home alone, might be working alone, and tempted to do something you never do under any other circumstances. Listen, church, don't cash in your values. Have you wondered what the king like said to these ladies? Verse 30, when the king heard the women's story, he ripped his clothes. And as he passed by along the wall, the people could see beneath his clothes that, that he was wearing mourning clothes underneath. And back then, ripping up your tunic, your, your long shirt, meant that you were beyond frustrated. And when the king's people saw his torn tunic, they could see underneath it that he was wearing mourning clothes. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that his tidy whities were made of burlap. That's what it means. That's kind of like wearing fruit of the loom made of pink attic insulation. <laughs> In other words, the king was so upset, he purposely put on itchy underwear. People did that back then when they were upset. They wanted their physical misery to match their emotional misery. The king's underwear, it said to the people, this trouble, it's big trouble. Death is coming and I'm powerless to stop it. And no, I'm not saying that we ought to ask President Trump what kind of undies he's got on. <laughs> what I'm saying is that sometimes even those in the top positions have no idea how to stop the trouble. These two cannibalistic baby-killing mamas, they push this king to the brink. And he goes off the rails and he begins to curse. Verse 31, he says, May God strike me dead if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, stays on his body today. Well, Elisha is God's messenger. And the king's putting a hit out on God's messenger. Why? Because the last time the king was in a bad spot like this one, Elisha prayed and it got him out of trouble. But now the king's mad that Elisha hasn't done his magic with God and got them out of trouble again. Well, here's the third error that we can learn from. Here's what not to do when trouble comes. Write this down. I should not depend on someone else's relationship to God. 
Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, nobody comes between you and God. You don't need a priest, some Elisha, some super religious guy who talks to God for you. No, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you're a kid, your parents have made sure that you're connecting today to church, that's fantastic. Be thankful that they're teaching you about God. But please, 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 don't believe for one second that God's going to give you access to heaven because your mom and dad's going there. Your parents are not going to heaven because your grandparents are there. They get to go to heaven because they themselves have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And you can go too in the same way by putting your faith in Jesus. Jesus is the only way to heaven. You know, let's go back to the story. The king has now become incredibly impatient and no longer pacing the walls of Samaria. Verse 33, the king said, the Lord has sent this horrible trouble on us. Why should I wait any longer for him to help us? This too is really a bad way to approach the trouble in your life. What's the error here? Blaming God. Would you write this down, number four? When trouble comes, I must not blame God. That's what this king is doing. He's saying, why, why talk to God about this? I mean, God's to blame for it. See, see, when you rely on yourself in a crisis like this pandemic we're in, when you try to buy your way through it, do things your way, when that doesn't work, who should you blame? You should blame you, but nobody does. Instead, when our plan doesn't work, we blame God. It's kind of like you fell off a cruise ship and you're drowning in the sea and you find this bed of seaweed and you're trying to hold on to it, hoping it will hold you up, but it won't. And all you've got is the seaweed, but it's not enough. And then some deckhand on the ship throws you a life preserver. What should you do? You should grab it, but you won't. Because to grab the life preserver means you got to let go of your seaweed. You say, ah, I'd never do that. Yeah, yeah, you would. Sometimes God allows trouble to come our way and it's his way of helping us see our need for him. But we're so focused on grabbing onto that which will never work that we refuse to see that he's right there ready to save us. Now, the end of this story. God saves this city in the most unusual way. You see, sitting right outside that outer wall of Samaria were four lepers. They were outside the city because they were contagious. And the Bible lets us eavesdrop in on the conversation between these four contagious characters. They're talking to each other. This is chapter 7, verse 3. Now, there were four men with skin disease at the entrance to the city. They said to each other, what are we doing sitting here until we die? If we decide, let's go into the city. The famine's there and we'll die in the city. But if we stay here, we're going to die just the same. So let's go and surrender to the Aramean camp. If they let us live, we'll live. If they kill us, we die. The lepers, they had a bigger problem than the people in the city. They were beggars. They sat at the city gate, sticking out their bottom lips, trying to look sad enough for the, the people who were coming back from the vineyard, you know, for the fields, for food. And they were hoping, you know, city people would just toss them a few groceries. But the siege had cut off the foot traffic even more than COVID-19 shut down our schools. So the lepers were starving for food. And as we eavesdrop in on their conversation, we learn the lepers, they weren't idiots. They were discussing their options. Option one, let's go in the city. Well, but people are eating their kids there. So option one means we die. Option two, uh, let's do nothing. Let's stay, let's stay right here at the gate. But dude, that's what we're currently doing and, and we're dying. So option two is out. Option three. Let's knock on the enemy's door for food. You know, if they kill us, then we're no worse shape than option one or two. But, you know, there's a chance they might feed us 
so we can live. Friends, to thrive in the midst of life's trouble, you must first avoid the errors of those panic people that they were making, and then you've got to step into the plan of these lepers. They had four key steps. Write this down. Number one, you've got to analyze your situation. Write it down. Analyze my situation. See, see we often make a bad situation worse by just emotionally reacting to it. But they thought their trouble through. They used logic. They studied their options. And once they found an option that might work, they took their second step. Verse 5. Take a look. After the sun went down, they got up and they went to the camp of the Arameans. What did they do? It's what you need to do. Write this down. Move towards hope. Everybody, write that in the comments right now, would you? Move towards hope. Move towards hope. Do you know someone that needs hope? Share this message with them. I mean, these are tough times, and people need to move towards hope. But that's not easy. Can you imagine these four guys, skin falling off their bodies, ribs showing from lack of food, trying to climb down from the hill of Samaria and to sneak into the enemy's camp? I mean, what guts it took, what courage. I can see it now. Uh, go ahead, Bob, you go first. <laughs> yeah, I go right after you, Tom. I mean, it had to be nerve wracking. They were the dregs of society. Nobody gave hope to the hopeless. Nobody would want them. But they went to the only place that could possibly offer them hope, even if it was possible that hope might not work out. But it did. Verse 5, when they came to the edge of the camp, there was no one there. Because the Lord had made the Aramean camp hear the sound of chariots and horses and a strong army, and the camp was empty, but not of food. The army left so fast, they left all the food behind. Verse 8, so these men with skin disease, they came to the edge of the camp. They entered a tent where they ate and they drank. They carried off silver and gold and garments and they hid them. And then they returned and they went into another tent and they took more things from there and they went away and they hid them. And then here's step three, and we're going to deal with it together soon. You see, God is going to deal with this coronavirus. And when we gather together, when this is over, we're going to do exactly what these lepers did. It's step three. Write this down. Celebrate God's provision. Yes, these guys, they have a reason to celebrate. They hit the lottery. They've gained what their city's looking for. Food, drink, new clothes, gold, silver. I mean, seemingly unlimited supply. Isn't this what our nation needs? We're besieged, huddling in our homes, filled with anxiety and worry and panic and trying everything to solve it except God. And friends, if someone in our nation found the cure to this virus, if someone found it and did not share it, oh, they'd be in a world of trouble when the rest of us figured that out. Here in our story, four guys, they take a risk, they find the cure, and now they're living it up. I mean, they've not moved from coach seats to first class. No, these guys are lepers with leers. They've gone from economy to private jets. And listen, that's just how God provides. God never provides a small amount. God brings a bounty, a buffet, a fantastic solution. The Bible says when you and I discover Christ, we're given the riches of his grace. Friends, that's the spiritual equivalent of topping the Forbes list. But we should not keep our riches to ourselves. Listen, if you don't get anything else today, get this. Verse 9. They said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. 
If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. Write this down at step four. Write it down. Share hope with people who have no hope. Listen, church, we have an opportunity to do that in this crisis. When this thing's over, we're going to be gathered here to celebrate how God provided. You see, we have hope, right, church? I mean, you know your God's going to come through, don't you? Our God is fully capable. And when God comes through, we will celebrate it. But we should not celebrate alone. We need to point our friends and our family members to the God of hope, to the God that provides, to the God that restores, because no matter what challenge lies in front of us, God is still in control. He knows our circumstances. He cares about our hurts. He has a plan. And friends, while it's stunning to look back at this story from 3,000 years ago, to look at what not to do and what to do, the best thing to sum it up today the way to put it all into perspective is this. In the middle of whatever trouble you face, trust God, for God's in control. Let me ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe he's in control? Put your answer in the comments. Do you believe God is aware of your circumstances right now? Comment on that. Let me assure you, God is in control. God cares. You may have trouble, but don't you give up. Paul told the church in Rome, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. When Paul was thrown into prison, talk about isolation, prison, he said to the church in Philippi, in Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, he's in prison, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. What happened? In prison, he wrote the New Testament, much of it, like half of it. The Old Testament hero, Joseph, he said after his brothers tried to kill him and then he threw him into slavery instead, Joe said, Genesis 50, 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Listen, if you got trouble today, God knows. And the solution is to run to him, not away from him. The prophet Elisha, in our story, he promised the king of Samaria that the famine would be over in 24 hours. He said that in just one day, there's going to be six times more food at one-fifth the cost. And the king, the government, laughed at the message from God. The government said, well, even a miracle couldn't solve this trouble in that short a time. But it did. When the Aramean army fled, they left all their supplies. So the Samaritan grocery stores had so much food, now they couldn't even sell it at normal prices. The prices went to near zero. Listen, you can trust God. Everything that God has spoken will come to pass. He will protect you. Proverbs 35 says God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Friends, like the lepers, when you find Jesus, you find the mother load. You never need to go back to begging at the gate. You got so much more than you'll ever need. So here's a takeaway. If you know Christ, and you're in this crisis, don't go back to your old habits, your old begging ways. Rely on him because you've got the riches of his grace. And remember this, when those four lepers discovered what a 25,000 people in their city needed, they realized, I can't keep this to myself. And they told everybody around them what they found. Listen, right now, even more than any time since 9-11, our nation is ready for God. Our city is desperate for God. And if you found Christ, don't keep it to yourself. Let him know. Share your story and put your testimony out there. Let's not keep Jesus to ourselves. Our friends, our neighbors, they need hope. They need what you have. Bring peace to someone's life and share it.
you know, several years ago, I, I'm, I'm in a bus ride uh, returning from a Cedar Point trip, and I'm talking to this kid named Kreps. Yeah, weird name, Kreps. He, he was part of a group of some troublemakers on the bus, and I'd pull him up to the front of the bus, kind of to break the group up. And as we're talking, Kreps, he had a lot of questions about God. And I told him, you know, Jesus will come into his life if he simply says, Jesus, forgive me and lead me, if he humbles himself. Simple prayer. And you know, after about 30 minutes, suddenly the light just went on, and Kreps said, could I pray that right now and get Jesus? And I said, sure. And he did. And the moment Kreps looked up from his prayer, he got up, he went to the back of the bus, and he literally pulled his tribe, his friends, right up the aisle of the bus, right next to me. He says, listen to him. He makes sense. And his friends, I mean, they'd never seen Kreps like this. So they listened for the next hour. Partly because, you know, Kreps was bigger than them, <laughs> and partly because Kreps was so enthusiastic about what he had found. And when I finished answering his friends' questions, Kreps turns to his buddies, Borman and Cobb and Jono and Yablonk, and he says, I think what God wants from us guys makes sense, don't you? And because of Kreps' enthusiasm for Jesus, all four of his buddies bowed their heads and came to know Christ that evening on the bus. I challenge you, church, let's follow in Kreps' footsteps. Let's be like these lepers. Let's not panic and cower like the Samaritans. Let's let our world know about our Savior. You've got good news. Share it. And what a party it'll be when your friends and family hear it. Let's pray together. Would you join me? Father, we thank you for what you're going to do through this crisis in our nation. We live in divided times, red states and blue states, Republicans and Democrats, and everybody at war with each other over ideologies. But Father, you made every single one of us. You knew who we were in the inner part of our mother's womb. You knit us there together. And God, I pray that this nation that you use this crisis, this coronavirus, to knit us back together into a stronger fabric, a fabric of a nation that started saying, we're going to be a nation under God. God, we've got from out from beneath you. We've left your shield of protection. Use this time to bring us back to you. Use this time to connect us back to each other. And God, if, if we've gotten arrogant, God, we, we humble ourselves before you and we submit ourselves to you. And we ask you, forgive us for trying to meet our needs with our own resources. Forgive us for the hatred we've had towards each other and change this land. Change us. And then God, use the change in us to echo out from us and help people get connected to you. And God, when it's all done, we'll see your plan. We'll see how you use something terrible to bring about something amazing. God, work in our hearts. Help us to be beacons of hope. Not people that panic, but people that let others know about you. We want to be like these lepers who found it all and then turned to a, a struggling city and said, here's what we found. We want to share it with you. Help us to do that even right now, to, to share it with somebody we know right now needs hope, somebody that's struggling, that we, that's up in on our mind. Help us to reach out right now and just, just share this message with them. Help us, God, be beacons of hope, messengers of hope, your agents of hope. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, 
I'm so grateful that, that you're continuing uh, to meet here online. It's such a new thing to do. So thank you for connecting together. You know, we've had an amazing congregation online, even more so than we've had in the building. So it's stunning to watch how you're connecting here online. I'm going to ask Deanna if she'd come and give us a couple wrap-ups as we conclude our message today. Thanks, church, for meeting together today.